This is Masters of Dispute Resolution on PodClips. Masters of Dispute Resolution is designed to provide those involved in the mediation process with the views of the most experienced and accomplished mediators and others experienced in the process. Through our discussions, you will gain insight into how to address and overcome difficult issues and achieve more satisfying results in mediation. Your host is Len Levy, mediator and arbitrator with ADR Services, Inc., a leading alternative dispute resolution provider. Lynn litigated complex cases for more than 30 years and has been a mediator since 1998 and is a member of the National Academy of Distinguished Neutrals. He has been recognized as a super lawyer in alternative dispute resolution each year since 2014. And now your host, Lynn Levy. Well, thank you, Daryl. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us on Masters of Dispute Resolution, a mini-seminar which will add tools to your mediation toolbox. We are brought to you by Lawyers Pacific Insurance Brokerage, Inc., the National Academy of Distinguished Neutrals, and ADR Services, Inc. This season, our third, we are changing the format just a bit. We'll be still providing you with insights into the mediation process, but we're doing so through the power of storytelling. In each episode, you will hear a story about a conflict, the impact that conflict had on the lives of the parties involved, how resolution was reached, and lessons to be taken from that conflict and its resolution. Now, many of the details of the story you are about to hear have been modified to preserve the confidentiality essential to mediation, while also conveying the essence of the conflict and its resolution. The title of the story today is How Mediation Helped Overcome a Wrongful Accusation and Denial of Due Process. And our guide through this and storyteller uh, will be Phyllis Chang. Uh, Phyllis has been a guest on our podcast before, and, and we welcome welcome you back. This is, this is a great opportunity. Um, Phyllis, just by way of background, has excelled at every stage of her career. For nearly seven years, Phyllis was director of the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, the DFEH, the uh, largest state civil rights agency in the United States. Um, Phyllis was also responsible for the enactment of California's Title IX law. And um, as director of the DFEH, um, Phyllis oversaw six and seven figure settlements, including the largest settlements in DFEH history. She was also senior appellate court attorney, a deputy attorney general with the civil rights enforcement section of the California Department of Justice, uh, de- a partner with DLA Piper's employment practice, and a two term commissioner and vice chair of the Fair Employment and Housing Commission. Uh, she has settled significant matters uh, in the area, uh, areas of various areas, uh, including civil rights, which is going to be uh, a subject that we are going to be talking about today. Phyllis, thank you for joining us again, and welcome to Masters of Dispute Resolution. Thank you, Lynn. It's a privilege and honor to be here. Well, let, let's just let's just jump right in to this to the story. This is a this is a really a compelling story 
that is one that is kind of off the beaten track for most mediators. As a matter of fact, virtually all mediators, uh, but the lessons to be learned from them, uh, from this story is, are, are very, very important. Um, Phyllis, why don't you tell us what happened uh, in this story? Well, Len, this is essentially an action brought by a former male student uh, alleging that the officials responsible for his Title IX a student conduct code violation case at a public university violated his due process rights by deliberately pursuing, investigating, trying and convicting him of the alleged sexual assault of a female student. When in fact, uh, witnesses and exculpatory evidence showed that there was no sexual assault that occurred. Um, the university officials alleged they had provided him due process. The uh, student lost in the administrative hearing. He lost in the um, uh, writ of administrative mandate, appealed to the Superior Court. But when he went to the California Court of Appeal, the court reversed, finding that basically the student was not afforded due process rights. So the case continued after that, and there was also a further federal court case that was a companion case um, that had been stayed. This is when the parties came into mediation to to talk about the case. So uh, how how did the the events that gave rise to this occur? Could you please just describe what happened? Well, what happened was. Um, the the uh, accused in question here, let's call him John Doe. He and the um, the person who made the accusation, Jane Rowe, were both undergraduates at the same public university. In uh, 2015, Jane had attended a party and gotten pretty drunk. Came back to her best friend's apartment, and uh, which which was shared between the best friend and John and uh, needed to take a nap. So the best friend said, why don't you just take a nap on this bottom bunk? And um, and she went under the covers and took a nap. In the meantime, John, who had gone to a different party, also had a lot of drinking, you know, college students. He came back to the, the same, the, that apartment. And, uh, and so the girlfriend, the, the roommate he shared the apartment with said, Oh, I know, you know, Jane Doe is sleeping under the covers. It's a it's a pretty big bed. Why don't you get on the other side of her above the covers? And I think you can you should both take a nap. So in the meantime, the girlfriend plus another roommate were sitting on a couch about two and a half feet away from the bed. And they the the bed was in their line of 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 view for you know for the rest of the evening. They were having a conversation. It was, the room was well lit. There was no no noise. And um, as far as the witnesses were concerned, the two of them just slept. In the middle of this napping, Jane, who was under the covers, suddenly felt, had the impression that she was being sexually assaulted. Now, she 
had drank a lot. She was on an antidepressant medicine and she had, she thought that she was being sexually assaulted. Eventually Jane woke up and exclaimed that this has happened to her. The roommate who had, you know, suggested that she sleep there, uh, took her back to her, her own place. In the meantime, when they returned, John was, you know, fast asleep, facing the wall, facing the other way on top of the covers. The roommate and the other witness looked under the covers and found no evidence of any kind of sexual activity, no, no, no nothing, no evidence of that. So the woman, Jane Rowe, who allegedly was assaulted, reported this to a county sexual assault response team, but she refused to identify the perpetrator. Two days later, she decided to report to this to the university's Title IX office. The office attempted to contact her for further information. But she didn't respond, and the file was closed. More than a month later, Jane decided to tell the campus police what happened to her. So she did, and this initiated an investigation. And three months later, the university told John that he was being placed on interim suspension pending an investigation, and he was not allowed to get, get on the campus. He was suspended. He could not continue his courses. So this suspension ultimately decided that it became a permanent suspension, or at least for two years, he was suspended. And this is when John went to appeal it at a hearing at the university, and then further to the Superior Court and finally to the Court of Appeal. John completely denied what had happened. Nobody saw any of this happening. The recipient witnesses in the room said this would have been impossible because they were there. And John even took a polygraph test by a, a court expert who does this kind of work and completely passed the test, um, allegedly exonerating him. But nonetheless, during the two years of all of this litigation and appeal, John could not finish his degree. He was six months from finishing his degree. He couldn't finish his degree. There was a suspension on his record he uh, had to get a job, uh, and you know, of course, a, a job that was not really in his field because he can't couldn't complete his degree. He and his mother were uh, reluctant to share the shame of his suspension with his family, and so his grandparents thought John was just a dropout, and right. his grandfather died during this time, believing John to be a great disappointment. The witness who was in the uh, the girlfriend was going to marry John and because of all of this uh, conflict the uh, the marriage was called off Phyllis I'm going to just interrupt right now we, we want I want to get into more of that and okay. how this affected him uh, but we're going to be taking a break right now um, I'm chatting with Phyllis Chang on Masters of Dispute Resolution I'm Lynn Levy and we will be back right after this break. Masters of Dispute Resolution would like to thank ADR Services Incorporated, your partner in resolution, and its founder, Lucy Barron, for supporting this podcast. 
ADR Services is one of the leading providers of alternative dispute resolution in California. Leveraging technology to drive resolution, ADR Services is committed to dynamism in the face of growing client need and an ever-evolving legal climate. Now operating offices in all major legal markets of California, ADR Services provides unparalleled in-person and remote resolution services through its exclusive panel comprised of more than 130 of the most distinguished and talented neutrals across the state, capable of handling challenging and complex mediations, arbitration, and other procedures in every field of law. When you seek the services of a neutral and you want results and satisfied clients, contact ADR Services, www.adrservices.com. Thank you. We're back at Masters of Dispute Resolution. I'm Len Levy, and I'm chatting with Phyllis Chang about of mediation that helped overcome a denial of due process uh, and a wrongful accusation. The story that you you told is very, very compelling uh, from a standpoint of having witnesses that saw absolutely nothing, even though they would have seen something, had something occur, uh, and someone who uh, the the uh, accuser who honestly apparently believed that she had been sexually assaulted. Um, now there was there was a hearing, and I think you you are uh, well familiar with the the process that these hearings take. Um, but one of the things about a hearing uh, in a Title IX uh, situation is that. There are differing rules from time to time. There, there are differing rules of evidence and things of that nature. Could you, could you please expand on what happened at the hearing? Well, at, at the time of the hearing, the university and all educational institutions were abiding by a U.S. Department of Education Office for Civil Rights, so-called Dear Colleague Letter, a guidance basically, which requires schools to adopt just the minimal standard of proof, which is preponderance of the evidence, when in the past, many universities use a higher standard of clear and convincing evidence. So at this time, um, at the hearing, John was not permitted to have his lawyer participate. His lawyer was there, but could not question any of the witnesses. John was, um, he could speak and ask questions of the, of the person who accused him, but she was not required to answer many of his questions. The only piece of written evidence was the report from the county, but only one or two sentences were shared by the, the deputy, and the deputy was not an expert at all on sexual assault. So John was not given the necessary evidence, the document to even uh, conduct his cross-examination. Finally, the um, Jane was apparently taking a medication, an antidepressant, which would have a severe reaction when interacted with alcohol, which was consumed heavily that night, and that could cause hallucinations. When he tried to ask questions about that, the university was prohibited him uh, from, from continuing and allowed Jane to not answer many of those questions. So these were all significant issues 
that would have proved up by whether clear and convincing evidence or preponderance of evidence, whether or not the uh, his accus the accusation would stick. So that those are some of the reasons why the Court of Appeal found that there was no um, due process given. And it's the court basically said it's ironic that an institution of higher learning where American history and government are taught should stray so far from the principles of the that underline our democracy and basically concluded that um, the the hearing was unfair to both John and Jane. Right. And and uh, John was uh, although John did not have uh, an, the ability to have his attorney question Jane, the uh, university did have an attorney there uh, that uh, was making objections. And and uh, the, the Court of Appeal opinion goes into that in, in, in quite some detail. Um, but the idea was that there was the court by the court of appeal uh was that that both had been denied uh the ability to have a uh a fair uh hearing so so the the now you have a situation where the court of appeal has uh has finally uh overturned the uh, Superior Court's denial of a writ of of administrative mandamus, which essentially require would have required uh, John to be uh, reinstated. Is that uh, how how that would work? It, it it could have, or it could have just reordered the um, university to conduct a new hearing. Okay, so so now. Uh, you have a situation that exists following the Court of Appeal opinion uh, where John is still suspended. Yes, he was he was suspended um, after for for two years. So by the time the Court of Appeal opinion came out, the suspension period was over and he was able to return to class and ultimately complete his degree. But he had lost two years. And and he had also lost uh, something else, his ability to uh, he was going for a B.S. degree and uh, they wouldn't give him a B.S. degree. Right. There were certain classes he had to take in order for him to get the B.S. degree. But because he was suspended at the time he was, the only degree that he could get uh, unless he spent even more years in college was to get a B.A. degree. And that really um, made him less qualified for a graduate program he wanted to get into. He did get into graduate school, but not in the program he wanted. And on top of it, he had the suspension still on his transcript record. So what he was seeking um, uh, is is essentially what? He was trying to to get, in addition to compensation for the lost years, um, the, um, you know, the, the wages he would have earned in those years, um, his emotional distress, um, punitive damages, and so forth, he wanted to be able to get a BS instead of a BA. He wanted the suspension to be expunged from his academic record, and he wanted to have a way to get into the 
program, the graduate program of his choice, which is also under the auspices of the university system. How did it come about that the parties decided that mediation might be a way of going? Well, the case had gone on for almost five years. Um, Both sides had expended quite a lot of money and time. Um, Even though John had won on his appeal, the university system would have continued litigating the case, uh, even if it had all to go all the way to the the California and the U.S. Supreme Court, since they were federal questions here. So um, to to just put the case behind everybody, they came to mediation. Well, what, one of the things that this, uh, at, at this point in the dispute, one of the things that's clear is that the parties have certain interests they want to achieve. Um, the, uh, the university is apparently per- perfectly willing to uh, go forward and have the court have this play out in the courts. John, on the other hand, has his life disrupted and uh, moving this forward to uh, something that satisfies his interests is something that perhaps the court is not going to be able to give him. That's correct. That's correct. And, uh, you know, it was really the first time that John and, and his mother came with him into the mediation were able to have a neutral listen to their story, for them to tell their story in full and express what had happened. There were more uh, that that they disclosed. There was more that they disclosed in the mediation than, than what was in the published opinion. All right. Well, we're going to take a break right now. And when we get back, we're going to get into what happened in that mediation. And uh, we are here with Phyllis Chang. This is Masters of Dispute Resolution, and I am Len Levy. Most attorneys need professional liability coverage, but very few are professional liability experts. And there are so many options when it comes to legal malpractice insurance. How do you know how much coverage you need? What should your policy limits be? What if you've had a past claim? You shouldn't have to take time away from helping your clients to research professional liability coverage. And with lawyer-specific insurance brokerage on your side, you don't need to. Their professional liability experts shop California's leading insurance carriers to find your firm the right coverage at the best price. Lawyer-specific founders Al and Debbie Hernandez have over 50 years combined experience working with the highest rated providers of lawyers' professional liability insurance. So trust the brokerage with access to over 40 carriers in California to find a cost-effective malpractice insurance solution for your firm. Go to LawyersPacific.com and click Request a Quote. Welcome back, everyone, to Masters of Dispute Resolution. I'm Len Levy, and we are chatting with Phyllis Chang, who is telling a fascinating story of an accused student uh, accused of sexual uh, assault and uh, suspended from the university and uh, his denial of uh, the denial of due process um, as uh, the court of appeals laid out. Um, and now we're getting into the phase where we're going to be talking about 
what took place in the mediation? Phyllis, uh, what demands did the parties have going into this mediation? Well, the John uh, demanded to have compensation um, for you know his lost wages, his emotional distress, um, his attorney's fees, which had been, exceeded a quarter million dollars by that time. Um, he wanted to have his uh, academic record, his transcripts expunged of the suspension. Uh, he wanted to um, get a BS degree instead of the BA degree that he has, he had been awarded. He wanted to have an opportunity to address his concerns to um, uh, key decision makers at the university, just to have a private meeting to talk about it. Um, and the university, on the other hand, just wanted to end the litigation, would have been happy to pay for damages, but not admit fault. And to continue, the university claimed it had qualified immunity and that any settlement was for business reasons, uh, not because it had committed any wrongs. Well, you, what's what's an interesting clash here, just if I may, is the idea that someone's life is personally affected on one hand, and then business concerns on another, on the other hand. Um, and so how did you approach reconciling those two very different types of interests? Yes. Well, um, as for John and, and also his mother, who was there, um, I think the most important part of the mediation was to have them tell their story in full and have someone listen and understand where they were coming from. But by, by the way, was this in a, a joint session or was this in a separate session? Separate breakout sessions. And okay. it was in person as well. This was pre-pandemic. And the university, I mean, I've, I've worked in government before, so I understood that the university felt, look, we had to follow the guidance of the federal government because in order for the university to continue receiving its federal funds, that's our obligation. And if the federal government says it's, you know, a lower standard of proof, then we followed it. And if we were to not do that, we could have lost our federal funding and sexual assault you know, have been a significant issues in higher education. And so the university really did not want to be in the position of helping the accused, but giving every chance for the uh, the victim to have her day in court. So that was the view of the university. Right. And and so with with those types of, of demands going on um, and those types of interests going on, your job as the mediator is to try to reconcile those interests to the extent possible. And um, your uh, how, how did you approach that? Well, I um, let the, the uh, um, let John understand mm -hmm. that I fully heard him mm -hmm. and, and, and understood the, not only the, 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 
the issues of the, his hearings and everything else, but also on the personal level, what it meant that it created this time lapse for him in terms of his education and his career. And during that time, when you're in college and when you're, you know, before you're 21, two years is a very long time for him to lose his friends who had moved on, for him to have lost his girlfriend whom he wanted to marry, for him to have disappointed his grandparents and the estrangement that happened when you're trying to hide something from your family, and for his grandfather to have died, being disappointed in him, thinking he was just a college dropout. All of these personal losses, personal trials that he had to go through, that that's something that the university can't even compensate him for. But understanding that, that, that went a long way into uh, trying to get them to look at the case a little bit more realistically in terms of settlement. For every demand they, they asked me to communicate, I communicated to the other side. I tried my best with the university to explain to the university why these demands were so important for the uh, for John, the university also explained to me their constraints. Their arms were tied, and that in order for, for example, for John to receive a BS rather than a BA, that would have required a major change in the university policy because the degree was already awarded to him. They could not promise him a seat in the graduate program he wanted to get in. He was already in graduate school somewhere else. The university also. Um, could not promise him a personal meeting with the uh, decision maker in charge that John wanted to meet with. But the university was able to agree to a settlement amount that worked for John. And the university was able to expunge from his academic record the suspension. This is not going to write everything that happened to John, but it went a long way into making him think that he had a new start and there was some compensation for the pain and suffering and the expenses that he had, had uh, put forth for, for, uh, for the, all of this experience. Well, you know, what, one of the, and we'll get into a little bit of the takeaways here. Uh, one is, at least one that I see, is the fact that you can't unring a bell in mediation. Mediation is a forward-looking process. Uh, what can we do from this point forward to help the people uh, and entities um, s fulfill their needs and their interests? Um, and and in, in this particular case, um, it, it seems that the, uh, the university... Um, was also uh, unwilling to um, or, or either unwilling or just simply unable. I, I, it's hard to it's hard to tell when you're mediating the case uh, or uh, uh, to change a policy or make an exception or things of that nature. Is that pretty much the way they viewed it? Yes, I think the university is a complex system. You know, they have federal strings that are tied to their funding. They have a hierarchy of decision makers in the administration, as well as in the, the, the academic senate. 
So it's not like there's one person who could have granted the request that the, the that John asked for. Um, the complexity of just decision making as a whole in the university made it difficult. Um, and so if the university had tried to uh, comply with all of his demands or try to comply, it would have lengthened the litigation further and the case never would have settled. Right. Well, we're going to take a, a, our last break. Uh, we're going to be getting into more of the takeaways from the results of this mediation. And uh, we're chatting with Phyllis Chang on Masters of Dispute Resolution. I'm Lynn Levy, and we will be back soon. Masters of Dispute Resolution is sponsored by the National Academy of Distinguished Neutrals. NADN is the premier invitation-only association of civil mediators and arbitrators in the United States, with members in every state of the nation. Only experienced ADR professionals who are widely acceptable to local plaintiff and defense firms are invited to join the Academy's roster. The Academy's website, NADN.org is the most widely visited neutrals database in the world today. With over 40,000 law offices, insurance companies, and corporations visiting our free website annually. Firms can search for neutrals by many criteria, including location, case expertise, qualifications, language skills, and most NADN members also publish their available dates, calendars, online making NADN.org the go-to website for law firms wishing to schedule appointments online with their preferred mediators. For more information, please visit www.NADN.org today. Welcome back to Masters of Dispute Resolution. I'm Len Levy, and my guest is Phyllis Chang, who has been telling us a story of a mediation uh, that can help write and, and help a young man move forward with his life, uh, but had certain limitations. And those limitations are what I would like to start out our last segment on. Um, there were some significant ramifications that occurred for, uh, for John Doe in this situation. And uh, you've described some of them. Um, let's go into just a, a, a little bit about how this affected his family and where those where the limitations of mediation might exist in situations like that. Well, Len, as you said, you cannot unring the bell. This happened. He lost two years of time. He created the, the uh, deep secret that he held about the shame of his suspension that created estrangement within his family, between him and his grandparents, for example, between him and his friends, because he was ashamed of explaining why, between him and a woman he would have married, but because of the stress of the situation that ended. And that also just created kind of a lack of um, belief in the democratic system in John's mind uh, and so those things are difficult to overcome. I think by having a neutral listen and you know empathize with some of those feelings, that was an important 
outcome of the mediation. But again, I could not undo what happened. Um, you know, he was able to get compensation. He was able to expunge his record, but not the life he would have had had the event not happened. Right. You know, one of the things that we have uh, when people come into a mediation, very often there is not just uh, hurt uh, for the situation, but there might be an anger that is born out of being wrongfully accused uh, and and having uh, what seems to be, okay, I have two witnesses, saw nothing happen, well-lighted room, uh, could not have occurred. Uh, and, and so uh, I didn't do it, clearly. So um, it, this should be a slam dunk and I can, should get on with my life. And the fact that in the process of going through it, he's denied the ability to question witnesses, to see documents in, in, in a timely manner, to do things of that nature creates a, a sense of resentment. Is that what essentially what you saw here? I did see that. I think that at the beginning of the mediation, I think John and his mother were very angry, but also very fatigued. But at the end of the mediation, I would say some of the anger was lessened and they could look beyond this experience and move forward. And I think that's the most important, the value of the mediation is moving forward and putting this terrible event in the past. Right, the the idea of being able to do that it, it is a fantastic uh, result of mediation. Uh, and not everyone can. And and one of the things that that I pick up too is that there is a process that people, people often will come into a mediation and say, well, we should know in the next 30 minutes whether we can get this thing settled, right? Um, they don't understand very often that there is a process that people have to go through in order to uh, swage their anger, in order to, uh, in order to be ready to uh, let go of things. Um let me ask you though, on 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 the university side, um, was there any acknowledgement uh, or a a an any empathy that was conveyed uh, to John from the university side that, gosh, at least you know we're sorry this happened to you or anything along those lines? Uh, I would say no. First, the university had its outside counsel, and it's uh, kind of like a general counsel there. So they were representing the institution, and so they had to speak on behalf of the, of the institution's interests. And not so much, it's not a person. So you're talking about a person against an institution. So the feelings are quite different, but I can't believe that the university didn't hear what happened, didn't read the Court of Appeal opinion, and would have would be more careful in the future in conducting any kind of disciplinary hearings. They wouldn't admit that, but I'm sure there was a lesson learned. 
You know, one one of the things too, uh, you know, we're we're talking about John uh, having to go uh, move past it, uh, this situation. Um, very often, we're we're in mediations faced with a, a one party being the only party personally affected by this uh, by the events that gave rise to the dispute. Uh, and the party that is personally affected uh, is going to um, have to be, unfortunately, uh, the one that is, you know, when we're talking about a balance of power here, who has more power to assert their, uh, assert what their solution is. The person who is who is mo- most personally affected, it seems to me, uh, has a slightly less power. Is that what your takeaway is? Yeah, I, I would agree that individuals have less power than institutions. First, there's in terms of time, individual lifetimes are linear. And by the time John had his mediation, he was well in his mid-20s when all this started. He wasn't even 21. So those are important years. And for him to continue uh, as an individual, time was against him. Whereas for the university, its lifetime is perpetual. So that was in favor of of the university. but nonetheless, I feel that the, what I usually do in a mediation, whenever there's an individual against an institution, um, I always say to the individual, look, I know you feel harmed and hurt by this terrible uh, experience that you've had. But you know what? If you want, if, if, if you want to be vengeful about it, if that's your, your goal, and, and many people feel that way because they're hurt. I said, the best revenge is success. You believe in yourself. You've come this far. You've had your education. In John's case, you're in a graduate program. You have a lot to offer. And you know what? You go and show them how successful you'll be. That is the best revenge. So that's how I help the um, individuals who are victims of, of discrimination move forward is to look forward and to reassert their their personal goals to see once again their once again their own value and and aim for success in the future. Phyllis, that is a beautiful, beautiful way of wrapping this discussion up. Uh, I I very much appreciate your getting into this uh, in in the depth that you have. Uh, I appreciate you uh, being uh, being a guest and 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 us becoming friends uh, through 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 discussing this and and other things. And um, I again will we'll, we'll have you back in the future. I know. I know we will. Thank you, Len. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. Wonderful to be your colleague and your friend. Thank you. I, I feel exactly the same. So um, basically, uh, Phyllis, how can listeners uh, best contact you and 
Listeners can contact me through ADR Services. My case manager is Hayward Cho. You can email him at Hayward, H-A-W-A-R-D, at ADRServices.com. Thank you. Thank you, Daryl Wayne, engineer and producer. And I'm your host, Len Levy. This is Masters of Dispute Resolution on Podclips.io, powered by Infigen Labs, Inc. I hope you have enjoyed this segment and continue to enjoy the stories we bring you. And in the meantime, stay well, keep listening, and remember, peace of mind is enhanced when conflicts are resolved. If you wish to contact Len Levy, you can reach him through his email at lslevy at adrservices.com, through Len's website, lenlevymediate.com, telephone him at 818-903-5562, or contact his case manager at ADR Services, 213-683-1600.